You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we'll be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Simon and I'm JR and this will be the first half of our series 10 retrospective Yay. now that we've had time to collect some thoughts and we're not doing uh, podcasts immediately after the episodes are finished or alternatively now we've forgotten <laughs> yeah, now what happened. But, but now <laughs> at least we can say oh all the ones we really liked actually aren't all that good and all the ones we really hated were great yeah yes that's yeah. the plan all the ones I remember that's the uh, which is my metric for good Doctor Who. Well, uh, oh dear. How many do you remember then? Oh, quite a few. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, they've only just been on. So. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So this is the... Uh, yeah. All right. So we got the people on our Facebook page to vote for the stories in their order of preference. I remember that. So instead of... It wasn't that long ago. Yeah. yeah. So instead of going through it... In uh, chronological order, we'll be going through it in reverse order of how much everybody liked the episodes. So, and <laughs> this oh, God, am I going to be a downer from the from the start? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so, going to get so, procre- It's going to get procreasing. That's assuming people dislike the one that I disliked, <laughs> which I don't think is true. Anyway. When I said procreasively, did I mean ingressively? Um, I don't think either are words, are they? Uh, oh, progressively and increasingly. Yeah, <laughs> very good. I quite like that. That was a genuine so accident. Yeah, I know it works. So this week is the dull, is the depressing week. Next week is well, the... this week will start off depressing and get slightly yeah. less depressing as we get towards the end. Well, that, that's the mark of a good blue box podcast. It starts depressing and gets a little less depressing by the end. Well, that <laughs> next, might be the... next week. It'll be a little depressing to start with, but getting better. That this might is, be the mark of a good Blue Box like, podcast as far as you're concerned, This is like Matt. British people talking about the weather. I was just thinking that, that um, considering Andy and Lee aren't here, and the reason they're not here, they should be recording a Blue Dot podcast for us, shouldn't they? Which will go over the head of 95%. Yeah, you're, you're because because they're at the blue, the blue Dot oh, I, yeah, I know that. festival. Yeah, <laughs> oh, sorry. If you'd let me finish, yes. The, the blue Did dot. I not let you finish? No, you seem really. to have stopped. <laughs> All right, we are... I tell you what, we've got... Only one person gave a comment for each story. So I'll read those comments out as we go. Several people gave comments for the whole series. People are getting lazier on, on... Is this Facebook? Oh, yeah, but what I think they're doing is they're going on the other podcast threads instead. Because <sighs> the other podcasts don't do it immediately. The episode finishes, so they always ask for people's feedback. Right. So that okay. people go on their threads and give them feedback. That sounds a bit disloyal. But I never ask for feedback. I'm rubbish. Oh, okay. It's my fault, not theirs. He doesn't oh, like okay. hearing other people's opinions anyway. No, <laughs> That's I don't. That's very true. I only have you two here to save myself talking entirely by myself to the microphone. Oh, no, isn't that the impression? I've got an email from um, Nick Knoll about World Enough and Time, but we'll save that till we get to World Enough and Time. Okay. And we'll do the... What that, we'll do is the bottom... Will, that will be next week then. <laughs> we are one assumes. <laughs> well, one might assume that, Matt, but we shall find out okay. as we go on. Okay. Um, oh, I have done something this time that I've never done before. 
So I will explain it when we get to the bottom story. But I was going to say, we'll do the bottom six today and the top five next time, and we'll do the rest of the comments next time. So we've got one comment from Steve Hur about each of the stories. <clears throat> and the story that came bottom, Steve Hur says, the monks were wasted and their motivation for conquering the earth was confusing for me. This promising trilogy just fizzled out. Oh. Now, before I reveal the name of the story, because I'm sure people are agog to hear it, I will say that for what I did was I counted up the number of votes that were cast. Mm -hmm. So 11 for the top story in everybody's poll and one for the bottom. Mm. And I counted that up. And what I did was I worked out exactly what percentage of the vote each story got. Okay. But more than that, I worked out that if the top story had got all top marks, it would have got 16.67% of the vote. And if the bottom story had got all last place marks, it would have got 1.52% of all the votes cast, right? I, I think I'm going to need <clears throat> diagrams of this. Do you understand, though? Um, sort of. I'm, I feel like I'm about to understand. Well, every person voted for 11 stories, yeah. which yeah. means they gave 11 points to the top one, 10 yeah. points to the next one, mm. 9 points to the next one, and so on. Yeah. So I added up all those yes. and then multiplied it by the number of people who'd voted Yes. and then divided that by, well, worked so out the percentages. So there's the percentage of the people who voted it in that particular place? Well, no, the percentage of the total votes cast. Okay. The minimum oh, right. possible okay. percentage of the total votes cast was 1.52%. Right. And okay. the maximum possible if was 16.67%. Right. Okay. This is not going to be very interesting listening. <laughs> but the reason I bring that up is because the bottom place story got 5.17%, okay. right. which means that it averaged about 3 to 3.5 out of 10. Okay. So what... But the reason I've brought that up to point it out is even the story that came in bottom... Hmm. actually averaged like eighth place seventh or eighth right. place okay. okay so what i'm saying is you know for, so for a lot a... of people to cast it bottom some people must have put it in their top three so this is suggesting that this is a consistent season <clears throat> yeah in general where even though it's not consistently brilliant it's just consistent or that the stories are liked by yeah. different people or yeah, yeah, there's a good yeah. proportion of people who don't know what they're talking about well, you said that. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> the story that came in bottom was the lie of the land. Oh. Yeah, you're quite surprised by that. Moderately. I'm gutted for it, if I'm honest. I had that, like, literally in the halfway spot on my list, I think. Mm. Sixth out of the mm. eleven. I, but I had a lot of these stories in my halfway spot. Yeah, I know. This is the thing. I can't think of any of the stories I would put... I, I didn't think any of the stories were disastrous enough to call them... Le the, the, the worst, the worst or the least yeah. good. Yeah. Well, lie of the land. I think there were two issues that people had with it, mm. or well, maybe three, but two main ones. <laughs> one was the fake out regeneration, yeah, and the other one was the monks, mm -hmm. okay. because the monks didn't seem very defined. Yeah, and I think people were waiting for the end of the series, expecting them to come back so they'd get some definition. Yeah. I can't say I ever expected them to come back. No, no, no. So, but it, what I liked about Lie of the Land mm. was I I thought it was a deliberate choice to leave the monks not very defined. Mm. 
because I thought that whole trilogy was kind of supposed to be representative of British and American mm. politics the way they are now. So they were deliberately yeah. left blank yeah. so that you yeah. could draw your own conclusions from it. I thought it was... I wouldn't say it was necessarily clever mm. in that respect. That was how they operated by their lack of definition. But yeah, they, I they thought were, it was a deliberate yeah, choice. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually, I thought as a choice, even though at the time it was written, nobody knew what was... Is the word was... insidious? Is that the right word? <clears throat> yeah, insidious is... Insidious, yeah. Yeah. Mm. They sort of... They kind of um, govern from the background. They kind of shadow. Yeah, yeah. The people. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, but I can, was... see, I can see why people would criticise it because, as you said, if you're expecting it to be more broad brushstrokes, kind of heightened baddies, when we've got a, a season with John Sim in it and, mm. and Cybermen and and but to be fair, there's only about three episodes where the villain is that black and white. Yeah, because throughout the first half of the series, everybody was saying. Oh, it's another machine gone wrong this week. It's another technology gone wrong. Yeah. And it wasn't till we got to... Well, to be honest, not till we get to... Well, in fact, I'm looking at it and I don't really think there knock, is an knock, example knock. other than maybe John Shim, Sim of well, an actual knock, villain. Knock Knock had a sort of a villain in... Yeah, um, but it turned out the villain shame. was yeah. only doing he things had, for... He occupied that role, though. Yeah, and in Thin Ice you had Sutcliffe. Yes. So there, it wasn't as if the series was entirely absent of villains. Well, then actually Sutcliffe did the same thing as he did here. You expected him to be more than he was. Mm. And actually the fact that he wasn't... I mean, we'll get on to this next week, we assume... The fact that he was... <laughs> <laughs> the fact that he was, he was actually less than he was... As you said, like in, it had a political motive. Yeah, he was yeah. like a, a little Briton sort of person, a little Britainer. Yeah, and I thought that was a thing Sorry. throughout the series. Mm. Mm. Were you doing a Matt Lucas impression? impression? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, little Britain. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, did did people have a, a problem with the ending of Live the Land as well? The sort of love saves. Well, the I day think some ending. did at the time, and also the shooting. And the shooting, but that's that's coupled with the fake out. I, I, yeah, it's a little bit unfair to to kind of taint a whole episode on the basis of one feature, like the regeneration or something like that. It's, it's I, th- really... I think the shooting was probably pi- was slightly pivotal because it was when the Doctor came back into it. Mm. And I did feel that they didn't build up to the shooting well enough because you didn't see... I mean, clearly, Bill was under a load of pressure mm. in the lead-up to when she rediscovers the Doctor, but you don't see that. You just get Hear told about that. It. Yeah. And yeah. I don't think... I mean, I think the actress, is, Pearl Mackie's brilliant. But in those scenes, I don't think she she delivered the performance of somebody that's slowly, slowly collapsing under mm. this pressure. In the same way that in uh, the the in uh, the the second to last episode, yeah, World Enough Time, yeah, I didn't feel like she quite she quite. I didn't get the sense that she'd been down there for ten years. No, I, I got, agree with that. I, but I didn't get that impression with. No. Well, when she shot the doctor, I didn't feel like it was earned slightly. I thought okay. I thought she suddenly <clears throat> flipped. So early in the episode, in some respects. Yeah, yeah. I will say one thing about the stories, about all stories. This is just a general comment, really, but I think it's worth bringing up. People don't put things in there by accident. Mm. And even if, even if the writers maybe and I wouldn't ex- expect this to be the case in any of these examples, even if the writer's not putting their full concentration on it, 
there'll still be subliminal reasons why they put things in. Yeah. But in Doctor Who, you know, there's there's so much effort goes into it, and there's so much overview of the, over the top of it. I don't think a single thing's in there by I, accident. So I think, I think Bill Flipping was explained in the script, and it, it was yeah, it was the. I think the execution didn't quite. You're probably right. Didn't quite certainly the dialogue it. and what the yeah, doctor yeah, was coming yeah. out with. She was reacting to that. Yeah. She'd, and I understood. I understood that. I didn't understand the fake out regeneration. Well, that's you what ex- I was about to talk about. Yeah, I mean, you can explain it by the doctor just goes for it, but as no, some I don't pe- some think people so. Commenting, but one of the of... things that people have been speculating about is: has the doctor been holding off his regeneration for the entire series? No. And was that an example of it just escaping a little bit because he was getting a bit overworked up? Yeah, no. I mean, I'm with you on that. That's bollocks. No. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But one thing that Stephen Moffat likes to do, and when people are writing scripts for Stephen Moffat, something they tend to do is mimic, in some ways, some of the things that he does. Mm. One of the things that he likes to do is foreshadow anything that's coming up by either giving another example of it earlier or by giving something else earlier that ties in with the thing. Mm. And Stephen Moffat's also one of these people who likes to give you the answer before he asks the question. Mm. So, for example, in World Enough and Time, not in World Enough and Time, in The Doctor Falls, Bill gets saved by the pilot. Yes. And at the end of the first episode, it's left completely open to the fact that the pilot will come back for Bill at some point. Yeah. The, the potential's there. Mm. So he's given you the answer to the series in the first episode mm. and then left it so long that you're, you've forgotten about it. Yeah. So that when it, it happens, it's supposed to be a nice surprise and a moment when you go, oh, yes, of course. Of course yeah. Right. I don't think that quite worked, but we'll talk about that next week probably. Yes. <laughs> but on the subject of the fake-out regeneration... If you've got another writer who's doing a script for Stephen Moffat and is mimicking in some way some of the things he does, what he might do is give you at the start of the episode an example of the thing that's going to solve the episode, right? Yes. And at the end of the episode, the lie of the land, the whole monk's problem, is solved by faking out the fake out. Mm. So it's not just that there's a fake out, but it's that they're faking it out, the monks. Mm. The Doctor comes in and tries to fake out their fake out by making it real, which doesn't work because the reality doesn't contradict the fake out enough that the fake out is broken. So then Bill comes in and fakes out the fake out of the fake out. This sounds like a Stephen Moffat script. It sounds like a Swing Out Sister song. <laughs> but, but, but we so all saw say, it, so you know what I'm saying. So you're saying that the, the faked regeneration... Is um, a fake out on antici- top of a fake anticipates out. Anticipates the end of the episode. Yes. Right, okay. And also, I don't know how much Toby knew about what was coming up in the series, mm. or whether Stephen Moffat... Because they will have discussed these things, and Stephen Moffat may have said to him... Yes, if you want to do something in there that sort of preempts the end of your episode, this might be the thing to do. Yes. Because at the end of the series, there's another faked yeah. out regeneration. Mm. So Stephen Moffat's fake out regeneration mm. essentially foreshadows I can well, so I can buy I can buy the regeneration in Live the Land as 
foreshadowing something that happens in the end of Live the Land. Yes, I think that's I th- what it's for. Yeah, I think it's more tenuous to say it's foreshadowing the regeneration at the end of the series. Because no, I think it's interesting. No, I think because, I think because that's not, but that's not foreshadowing. That's it's dem- actually it's demonstrating well, I said the as yeah. opposed to foreshadowing. It's, it's the Doctor demonstrating his control over his own regeneration. Yeah, power. well, possibly. But, but what I'm saying is, yeah. Moffat and Whithouse will have discussed, yeah. to a degree, some of these things. Mm. And it's not a case of Moffat saying, look, this is this series is going to end with a, yeah. not a regeneration fake-out, but essentially a regeneration fake-out for the audience. Yeah. So stick a fake-out regeneration in there. Mm. But he won't have said that to Toby Whithouse. Yeah. But they will have discussed certain things, and Toby Whithouse will have said, well, what if I do this, or what if I do that? And Stephen Moffat will have said, well, what if you do this instead, or what if you do that thing in that way? Does, does... And at some point, because Stephen Moffat will have known where the series was going, yeah. if the subject of a fake regeneration comes up, Stephen Moffat will just have said to him, yes, use that, and do it like this. I mean, the, the cynical part of me also thinks that uh, this was an opportunity to have a piece of footage they could put in the trailer. Oh, that, no, I agree. That, that I then agree. says, at some point in this series, the Doctor will regenerate. That was my and immediate So thought. that's... Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, but they couldn't put the the final regeneration in the trailer, presumably because they hadn't shot it by the time the, the trailer had No, out. but, I mean, they could have because shot... Because shot that scene, like... But it would have been very like easy. But it would have been very easy for them to... Um, shoot just a few seconds of footage of his hand starting to glow while he's still in the TARDIS before he comes out at the end and yeah. use that. So it's yeah. not it's, it's not also, as if yeah. they needed, if they wanted to use regeneration in the trailer, they needed to use this one because they did have mm. other options that could have been available to them if they'd wanted to. Yeah. So it has to be more than just that it was it's for the trailer. It's also a form of misdirection though, isn't it? <coughs> because obviously they're, they're saying, oh, that bit that was in the trailer, the regeneration, that's, that's the regeneration that's in the series. Yeah. Therefore, yeah. one that comes on later. Because mm. they've, they've already, in interviews, said yeah. it's going to be different this time. And you might, and I've already shot... But they've not said how. And no. actually, Capaldi, <laughs> when he said in interviews, I've already shot my death scene, mm. he was lying at that point because what he was talking about was that no, scene. No, I alone. think his death scene is um, the scenes in... Oh, um, yeah, in... Um, the Doctor Falls. Where I, he don't, gets... I don't think he shot that. I think, they are, I think he shot those quite recently. I think those those were shot as part of the Christmas special. But he didn't make the, the quote the until relatively recently. No, he made the quote before the start of the series. No, no, no. The scenes, not the regeneration scene. That's his regeneration scene. His death right. scene is not his regeneration scene. Mm. Okay. His death scene is the bit where he gets oh, killed. Oh, right. Okay. Because okay. people would bring him back. Okay. In theory. okay. Well, what, yeah. what I was going to say about the, um, the whole regeneration thing, though, is I, I find it, I'd probably take it more, on a far more cosmetic level in as much as it was, it was a joke. It was. It was all to do with. Oh, wouldn't it be lovely if the Doctor fakes a regeneration and, and then turns around to them and says, "Was that a bit too much?" Because I thought it was really funny, and that's why I've kind of not. Which is great, but well, you're it works on levels, it. different but, levels. But yeah. when it's a joke, you're making a joke out of regeneration in a series in which it's a build-up towards regeneration. Uh, if so you're a you... fan and you take it seriously, so yeah. if you're a fan, you're applying that level to it. But I don't yeah, think it then... is that. It's the Doctor's just kind but... of taking it a bit too far. But I think just that... like he took getting shot too far. Yeah. I think also there's a case to be made for the fact that the general public, knowing that there's a regeneration coming at the end of the series, will have thought, well, it can't be happening that early. No. Oh, hang on. It looks like it is happening. Oh, it's not. And then groan. Yeah. It's one of those. It's a groaner as opposed to a laugh out louder. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, possibly. On the subject of regeneration, there's also this 
Right, I'm going to have to talk about Dr. Falls for a bit again. But hey-ho. A whole week early. Mm. We assume. Apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's this thing in the episode where all the characters seem to go off without knowing what's happening to the other characters, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Which some people have pointed out. For instance, the bill goes off without knowing the doctor. It's a great escape, isn't it? Well, well, hear me through. Okay. Bill goes off without knowing the doctor is going to regenerate. The doctor dies without knowing that Bill's been saved by the pilot. Um, none of them know that Missy had a last minute change of heart. Nobody knows that the master's going to go off and regenerate. And nobody knows what happens to Nardole. Which seems like a nice symmetry between all the characters. <coughs> Except there's a scene in The Doctor Falls where Missy's about to go off with John Sim where she shows the Doctor the dagger and what she's going to do to John Sim. So the Doctor knows she's had a last-minute change of heart, and she also knows that John Sim... And he also knows that John Sim's going to regenerate as a result of what Missy does to him. Now, that's not where I'm coming to. Where I'm coming to that brings it back to the lie of the land is... There are two ways to read what happens with Bill. At the end of the series, she potentially gets there not knowing that the Doctor's capable of regeneration and thinking he's dead. But she has this dialogue, and we know that Moffat uses dialogue to ambiguously signal his real intention. She has this dialogue where she says, but you'll come back because people need you too much. Which either could just be a bit of wishful thinking on her behalf, or else it could be a signal to the audience that she knows what regeneration is. Now, going back to the lie of the land, people have said, well, why would he go as far as the fake out when she doesn't even know what regeneration is? Well, I think it's deliberately been kept from us. The scene that must have happened at some point where the Doctor explains what regeneration is to Bill. Mm. Because by the end of the series, he's talking about, oh, I think I may have been a girl then when he was Mm. back on the Gallifrey with the Master. One or other of us might have been a girl then. Mm. And John Sims there... And Missy's there. And the Doctor says, oh, they're both the same person. Mm. At this point in The Doctor Falls, if the Doctor was saying that to Bill and she didn't know what regeneration was, she'd have an awful lot more questions than she actually does. Mm. Mm. So I wonder if actually at some point during the series we are supposed to read it that regeneration has been explained to Bill. Mm. And then if you can go back to the lie of the land and the bit, because one of the people's complaints was, why does he do the regeneration thing when she doesn't even know what it is? Mm. But when she looks shocked at all those things happening, she's A, too shocked at the turn of events to say, why did you do the regeneration thing? Mm. Because she doesn't have her wits about her at that point. But she's also, also too shocked to say, what the hell was that thing he did with all the flashy lights? Because she doesn't have her wits about it. So I think if if you go back and watch the entire series in sequence with full knowledge of where it all goes and reading that version of the ambiguities, at that point, possibly she does know what regeneration is. So she doesn't actually think she's going to kill him? Well... Or she thinks there's a chance he will survive it? Yeah, but more to the point, his regeneration thing that seemed to be entirely for no reason whatsoever, suddenly makes more sense. Mm. Because 
oh my God, I've shot him to the point at which he's regenerating. I don't know. It's a possibility. And I, and I think Stephen Moffat throws these things in deliberately so that you can make your own mind up about them, right? Okay. Anything more on Lie of the Land? Uh, yeah, it wasn't the weakest episode. I didn't think it was. Head. No. No, it wasn't but, for me. But it had but those things that people disliked about it. Yeah. So okay. It ended up at the bottom of quite a lot of people's lists. The next one up, which got 5.79% of the vote, uh, Steve Hur says, Loved the two scientists and how normal, everyday human failings nearly brought about the end of the world. Clever storytelling and a thrilling climax. It is Pyramid at the End of the World. Swap them over. No. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, I would certainly swap them over. Mm. I think Live the Land is better than this. My issue with this is it's got a lot of good ideas in there. Yeah. But none of them are really looked at in the kind of depth they need. And they don't you attach to one another yeah, properly. You were mentioning the scientists and that. You, Mike, you were saying earlier, I know you were kind of joking, but... As far as remembering, I don't even remember that episode that well. But when you said about the scientists, is like, oh yeah, it was that one. Yeah, that one where, which kind of lacked. You kind of bounced bounced from idea to so, <clears throat> so bounced from idea to idea, but also from tone to tone, yeah, and size of story to size of story, without any so sort of cohesion. They threw in the, the the mysterious pyramid. They threw in a bit of satire about the three army officers who represent their nations. Mm. They have the scientists. You've got the doctor mm. who's blind. And it doesn't quite join together. It's like when they do go on MasterChef and they say, God, there's there's so much stuff going on this plane that it doesn't actually work together. Who's the writer of it yeah. again? Well, this is Peter Harness, who did okay. Kill the Moon okay. and the Saigon Invasion. Yes. Yeah. Both of which I thought worked a hell of a lot better than this. Oh, God, yeah. And both yeah. of which were purer than this. They were, yeah, they yeah. were more simpler. I mean, Kill the Moon was quite a straightforward sort of horror satire. And Zygon Invasion With politics was, at the end, yeah. yeah. And Zygon again was satire. With but politics, really, the end. Ground, uh, yeah, the Zygon version was just—it was just so meaty and so. Mm. But yeah, the thing it? about both of them, well, no, Zygon version, the sort of politics was all the way through, but mm. it was mostly kept in the background until it bubbled to the surface. Mm. Whereas the trouble with Pyramid is that, like, the politics is kind of threaded right through it and tries to always stay at the surface. Yet it's got all these other things going on. Sapphire, sapphire, sci-fi and satire. It felt a bit like there was a really good story in there, but somehow it's not underwritten, but almost overwritten. Like it, it had had a few drafts too many in order to add things to it, to yeah. slot it into the middle part of this. To, and to every time you actually, what it actually did was take the yeah. But yeah. every time you add Flavor something, you have to yeah. shrink something else. Yeah, it's watered down to the point where everything's so shrunk, I none of it really it, makes it any sense. Really quite bland. Yeah. One thing I'll say about the Monks trilogy that I have said before, but I think it's worth repeating, because, um, and this will come up in the comments next week, but one thing that a couple of people have said, I think, is that the Monks trilogy drags the series down in the middle, and we could have done without those stories and three yeah. other stories instead. Mm. But the thing is, as I pointed out when we talked about it, the Monks trilogy even if it hadn't been a trilogy, it would still have been those same three stories. It just wouldn't have been the monks in all of them. Because mm. the three stories came separately and they just yeah. added the monks to tie the stories together. Mm. So you would have had Stephen Moffat's take on The Matrix. Then you would have had Peter Harness's story about um, these aliens who want to take over the world by being asked to. Yeah. And then you would have had Toby's 
Toby Whithouse's story about after an alien invasion has been successful. Mm. But there would have been three different aliens and three different stories. Mm. I think in the past, Stephen Moffat's series have always had a sort of a tentpole in the middle, haven't they? Of really sort of... Well, they've generally been split, quite a few of them. I... Under Peter Capaldi, not so much, yeah. obviously. But there's normally there's normally been stories in the middle that have, have kind of shifted up the tempo or, you know, performed... <laughs> Almost sort of mid-season, season... Well, what he's done... Season conclusions. Yeah, is he has been telling a story that's looked like it's been separate from the main story, such as the Danny Pink story. And in the middle of the series, you've had an episode, The Caretaker, where suddenly Danny Pink comes to the fore and the paradigm shifts in the relationship between the characters. Mm. And then in um, series nine, you had the story of... Clara becoming more and more like the Doctor. Yeah. And in the middle of that series, you had the introduction of a Shilder. Yes. And also the second half of that sort of introductory two-part story, or two separate stories, is the one where Clara's missing. So you can use a Shilder as a representative of Clara to yeah. show how it goes wrong before you get back to Clara to show yeah. how it goes right, as it were. Yeah. So he does that generally in the middle mm. of his series. But this time, this time, it felt well, the like time, he was treading water a little bit. Well, the time he, in this series, where he does that, is by showing how Missy gets into the vault in um, Extremis, which right. is maybe A, too early, yeah, and maybe B, not obvious enough that it's... Yeah, I mean, that's another issue I had with the whole series, was how that ongoing story interlocked with the different, <clears throat> the different stories. It always felt like... You were following the well, kind of this series arc, separately kind of, from the stories. yeah, in kind of pre-title sequences and then codas at the end. Whereas it didn't feel like it sort of slotted in. Whereas in series nine, obviously the whole thing was integral because it was yeah. Clara. Yeah, and in yeah. series eight, Danny Pink was separate, but not in every episode. So say yeah. in the Forest of the yeah. Night and in the Caretaker, yeah. he's right in the heart of the episodes. Yeah, and you never had that here. You no. didn't really get Missy. You get a little bit of Missy in The Lie of the Land yeah. doing the Hannibal Lecter, but to be honest, The Lie of the Land wouldn't have been any different if she hadn't. No. So it felt a little bit... Tacked on to the stories. It's like I was said about... Um, well, it was two separate things. The, the Eater of Light. Is it Eater of Light? Eater Eaters of Light. About how actually the Missy bit in that, I, I suspect we'll be talking about that maybe this week. Um, I've, I've only got the piece of paper in front of us. Um, the, the the Missy bit at the end of that sort of felt like, I mean, it felt like it was added on and it actually, for me, diminished from the rest of the story well, because was there like, was a purity with the rest of the story. It was like the scene with um, River Song at the end of Closing Time. Yeah. It's yeah. it's not the epilogue to the story you've just watched. It's the no. prologue to the story yeah. you're going to see yeah. next week. I think that's fine. I mean, it worked with it worked with closing time because there was a certain tone to closing time, which was quite eclectic. It was quite a, sort of an ironic story. Yeah, so having of a coda, but Eaters of Light was more poetic and more mm. kind of you wanted it to just end. And if it had just ended, then you'd be thinking of it as a sort of a Rona Munro package. We need to end with the kid and the crow. Yeah, the way yeah, it yeah, come yeah. in. I think yeah. I think that that bit tagged on the end was just too long. Mm. I, th- I think it it's got to work because it's part of the series and it's yeah. part of the. But possibly and as, and as for once as, they should have done it as a post-credits thing yeah maybe so and as yeah. JR said it needed to end with the kid and the crow which is exactly what it would have done because yeah. I watched that, that thinking last, yeah. oh that's a nice end mm. oh and here's the next <laughs> okay game. now mm. they're yeah, moving on yeah. and if scientists in Pyramid 
Steve says, love the two scientists. And a few people have said that. Yeah. I yeah. thought it was really perfunctory, the characterisation of the two scientists. <coughs> I just... It was like, look at the guy who got drunk. Look at the girl who's having to make up for him. It's turning a hangover into a character rather than... Mm. Yeah. I mean, the two actors did well enough yeah. with what they were given. Mm. But what they were given was really just like three lines every five minutes. I kind of get the point that the point where we were going to need help and where we were about to destroy ourselves was quite a... Um, what the word is? Just, well, it was a mistake, essentially. Yeah. And, but I'll tell you what. <laughs> they accidentally let this toxin free yeah. inside the facility and then they're going to flush it out of the airlocks yeah. and into the atmosphere. What kind of a f- biochemical facility has that? I know, I know. I think what, capability. I think the char- <clears throat> characters, what Peter Harness was going for was what Robert Holmes did in Terror of the Autons with the two. So you bring in these two, in that case, it was the good and the uh, disc operate, operators. Mm-hmm. That he brought them in and he gave them personality through little hints of their domestic. So he had his lunchbox and he was talking mm. about his wife making his lunch. Mm. And that's quite a nice way of building like a doomed character's character <clears> before <throat> you bump him off quite quickly. But he didn't, I don't think Peter Harness quite managed that. Well, I think the difference the is that when Robert Holmes did it, all their scenes are at the start of the first episode. Yeah. So you kind of get to know them. And then the thing happens. Yeah. Whereas by spreading the scenes with the two scientists throughout the episode, so you're just getting 20 seconds here and 30 seconds there, mm. you're not really getting to know them because yeah. their conversations have to be a little bit of the conversation they had at that point in time yeah. and then a little bit of the conversation they had there. Yeah. So the conversation itself doesn't get a chance to develop. And again, if you lop out, if you lop out an element of the story another element of the story and give them a bit more space and that would be solved I think that would just yeah. you know it would, you'd get to know if they were half the episode and the other half was was the results of this global disaster mm. then you sort of then you have quite a satisfying episode I think it's like in um, World War Z or World War Z the bit where they get to the facility at the end yeah is like a proper chunk of the movie it's like mm. Yeah, I don't know if it's twenty minutes or thirty minutes or yeah, but it's yeah. a proper chunk That's of the movie. The one where Capaldi plays the WHO. That's doctor. right. Yeah, and he's in that facility. He's yeah. in that scene, mm-hmm. and you kind of get to know the people there because mm-hmm. you're devoting a proper chunk of the movie to it. But crucially, you have the rest of the movie, and then you get to that bit. Yeah. So when you get there, you get to know the people there. Yes. And that whole entire sort of episode of the movie is with those characters but here i mean potentially uh, i mean i don't think you could actually have done it a different way from the way they did it given the story that they were telling yeah but potentially you could have got to the scene where the monks are saying no it's not politics that's gonna tear your world down and then all of a sudden you get this jump to these scientists Mm. and get a good five or ten minutes Mm. yes where the story freezes for the story about the scientists. And I I don't know, uh, narratively, that would have been slightly odd, but it's not like Doctor Who's not done slightly odd narrative things before. It's odd that you brought up World War Z, because by all accounts, the writing of the script of World War Z was sort of similar to these three episodes in that it changed. So they added Mm. that that last half hour. I really like, but it is a completely tonally 
completely tonally different from the rest of the, the rest of the movie is large scale yeah, zombie yeah. hordes swamping and then it goes locked down into this sort of claustrophobic and, and actually I like, it's the best bit of yeah, the movie yeah, yeah I think it's really fantastic but there's a reason the reason why it's tonally different is because it was sort of added later rewrite, yeah, rewritten yeah. at a later date but it makes sense but it worked it? in that yeah. I don't think it worked in uh, the pyramids no. episode I think I think it's funny though was, was they showed the female scientist and they showed her day leaving home and all that sort of thing because they wanted to show how one tiny accident, her breaking her glasses, can result mm. in the end of the world. I suppose. Yeah. I just think whether they should have shown the other guy as well. He was a bit more disposable. Because well, yeah, he just he turned was. up, hung over. Well, and then you hear about what he's done. Well, I, th- I think he was basically the red shirt. And she, yeah. and she was the one that was going to end up working with the Doctor. So he was just there to be sacrificed. In some ways, though, if you show the day of the red shirt and you only hear about the other person's day... He, you actually see him getting drunk, and then he comes in. She yeah, says, oh, "I've broken the glasses." Mm. That potentially could have worked better because yeah. then you'd be surprised at which one yeah. of them was that's the one that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, again, give them more space, and it would have become more satisfying. It was a story that <coughs> just didn't do enough sort of, like of any of the things it did. If you'd read the synopsis before seeing the episode, you thought that's a really good idea. Oh yeah, well we did. Lovely, you know, these opportunistic aliens who just wait for you to make a mistake, essentially. Yeah. Mm. That. And then step in and say, we'll save you, but we'll be your masters afterwards. Absolutely, mm. yeah. Right, the story that came in 9th of the 11 on 6.15%. Steve Herr says, great visuals, cute robots and nice enough story but the humans were written and acted very poorly. And that is, of course, Smile, which I think is probably my own least favourite of the series. Mm, it's a very fair review, actually. Great visuals. What Steve just said there is... Yeah, exactly I, I think it's not just that they're written and acted badly. I think it's that they're really badly positioned in the storm. Mm, mm. They needed to come in earlier. They just pop up. Yeah, and that boy, the boy turns up. Why is he... F- and Why then, him? And then they just let him wander off again, even though there's death around every corner. I think possibly you're right. They should have come in earlier for the, pur- for the purposes of their characterisation and their position in the story. But the fact that they didn't turn up earlier makes me like the story more because the bit I liked most was the deserted city, the visuals of that, the idea of this giant sort of weird architecture... Well, City. If you'd have had six people wake up, it would essentially have still been a deserted city story, but the Doctor and Bill would have had a guide. Yeah. And they could have they could have facilitated the Doctor finding out what's going on much yes. better than the Doctor just walking you, into a room and saying, this so is you, what's going on. When you consider the pace of that episode, it, was, it took its time, which was lovely, but actually they could have sacrificed a bit of that time to have think of things like Alien, you know, where they come out of cry asleep and there's a bit more... As you say, one by one, they start appearing and, yes. and start I interacting. Think on a but... practical level, though, once the other characters start appearing, they have to go into the studio. Yeah. And so suddenly you've got you've got the other sets. So it's the bits I liked were the bits that were filmed in Spain with the architecture and yeah. the fields. And you couldn't you couldn't bring. I mean, it would cost too much to bring the six actors out to the to there. Yeah. So on a practical, I mean, on a story level, I agree with you, but. For me, the one thing I really liked about this story was the location work and mm, the look mm. of it. And that, for me, redeemed the story. Not completely. I, you know, I probably wouldn't go back to watch it again. But it's what I remember best from the story. And they bring, they bring in six characters. You turn 
a really good part of the story for me into a sort of mediocre part for the, for the reasons to make the rest of the story stronger. It's just... But it's a better story then. Yeah. Because at the moment it looks lovely and it's got a nice atmosphere, but it's yeah. a very poor story. Yeah. Yeah, and I think on this occasion I'm prioritising the look over over yeah. the plot. And I'm happy, I'm happy with I sometimes can't do you that. can do that. I mean, I, I, I can... You know, appreciate the look, I but I can't prioritise it over the it story. It worked in about three quarters of the way through, is what I thought. Yeah. I mean, I I'd rather... Really I'd, carried along by it. Yeah, I'd rather not sacrifice one for the other. So, because... if well, they back, did, didn't they? Thinking that's back over saying. the story, the thing I remember most is that, that cornfield. I think that's a really good... You'd still have had the cornfield. Visual memory. Yeah. Yeah. You know... I, you say you'd rather they didn't sacrifice one for the other, but they did, didn't they? They sacrificed the story for the yeah for the ambiance. Yeah, um, and some of the rest of the story, the the way it all adds up is very very slender. Mm. Things like why would these micro robots be doing the things they do? I think it's a huge leap of faith that. That, that these robots would suddenly decide the way to cure people is to kill them. Hmm. I think it's a huge, huge leap of faith to uh, say that the robots that um, are there to be the translators for the micro-robots, you know, the smiley robots, hmm. wouldn't have any other language but smileys. How are they supposed to communicate technical data and stuff you like see that? what you're saying there, though, I guess it's a personal thing, because, like, you know, if you go back to Forest of the Night, I can't make the leap that you make with that. I find that really difficult to swallow. I mean, I mean this, but, sorry. But yeah, I know what you mean. It's, it, it, it's on the cusp of... Um, Being ridiculous. Well, the smiley robots yeah. didn't have to yeah. communicate technically. So the smiley robots had a very, very particular role. They had other computers in the city where they, they didn't could have get a role, did they? I can't remember. They didn't. I can't remember what their role was. By taking language off them and were leaving they not, them with Were they the not smile? sort of like supposed to be sort of inoffensive guides to the city. But how can they, they guide? They don't stations. guide if they can't tell you no. what to do or what a thing is. Yeah. All they can do is smile and frown and cry. Yeah. How are they supposed to guide you to anything? They, they would, they, it, it was a nice idea, but by taking language away from them altogether, it yeah. made them entirely redundant in the story. I mean, there's a, there's a hint of um, robots of death about it although they did have language yeah but the dumb robots i mean are dumb so which is what, just a functional so, robot to do something yeah but the micro so robots got, are already the functional robots yeah, to do something yeah but they you, are the dumb but you can see where they were trying to go that's what i mean it's yeah. really slender mm. there's an idea there and they're also you can but see but it's not been thought through you can see that they're attempting to do a sort of modern version of ark in space as well oh yeah and, and for that that makes then makes sense of the large chunk of just the doctor and bill <clears throat> but look at the exploring. structure of ark in space is the first 25 minutes is entirely free of any other the people yeah but the last 25 minutes times three yes. have got the other characters in yeah whereas this this one was the other way around this was the first 75 percent was free of other characters and then the last 25 percent had them yeah and i don't all these ideas could have been great ideas but the way they're attached together it's a bit like pyramid at the end of the world yeah Lots and lots of ideas, but none of them really thought through and made consistent. Mm. I appreciate what you're saying. The robots were essentially the interface, the interface between the humans and the 
nanobots or whatever they were. But they didn't do any translating. They were too, sim- they were too simplistic. They didn't do any translating mm. at mm. all. Mm. So you can't have an interface. You can't have a... It would be like if C-3PO spoke the same language as R2-D2 and only the same language as R2-D2. Should we move on? Yes. All right. The the one that came fourth bottom on 6.55%, Steve Hurst says, David Suchet was masterful as the landlord. I wonder if masterful was a deliberate choice there. Mm. And somehow I really cared about the fate of Bill's friends, even the annoying ones. And, of course, <laughs> that's knock-knock. I have to say I completely agree with him. I thought, see, where, where Smile failed was it failed to paint a picture of who the people were. Hmm. And um, where I think Pyramid at the End of the World failed a bit as well is in successfully painting a picture of who the scientists were. Whereas I think Knock Knock, by by having them as students already, there's a slight shorthand as to what they might be like. And by giving them those six or seven scenes together at the start, where they're house hunting, where they're moving into this house, where they're trying to settle into this house mm. before things really kick into gear. Yeah. You gave them about 15 minutes to establish themselves before the horror came. Mm. And, I, and even though the establishing in themselves was quite light, it still did enough of it. And there was enough charisma in each of the actors playing the parts. Even the girl who was supposed to be annoying was annoying in a in a in a way that if you you'd been in a position to be living with her you could have found ex- acceptable because she's the kind of she would have been the kind of slightly annoying housemate that everybody loves really right mm, mm. that everybody sort of puts up with mm. cheerfully enough was, so, uh, so, so uh, the housemates were established enough that you cared about them by the time the horror kicked off there's also an element. There's also an element. It's <laughs> you not, don't agree? I yeah. I mean, personally, I put smile above it because um, <clears throat> for, for many, many the same reasons as Matt, smile had a feel about it which I thought I hadn't seen before in Doctor Who at that level. Um, and this is it's a personal thing because not not <clears throat> was a more well formed episode and more cohesive and just worked better than Smile did. But I didn't find it as interesting. So I felt that Knock Knock was a far more of a filler episode. You know, you talk about filler album tracks. It felt like that. Whereas I thought Knock Knock did something that Doctor Who's never done before. Mm. It did the Teen in Peril movie. You know, yeah. the Cabin in the, the Woods, thing that class the should have Evil been. Dead. The... Sorry? The thing that class should have been. Oh, I don't know. Class was something different, maybe. Okay. But this did this did the Evil Dead mm. effectively. It stuck six teens in a location that they had no escape from. Uh, funny enough, though, talking about pyramid, it's another enemy that well, they weren't even an enemy, were they? Um, those bugs, I I just didn't. Well, we'll get to the bugs in yeah. a minute, Matt. I, you I, were mean, I say thought, something. I thought, as well as developing the main, the 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 sort of the housemate characters, by developing them, you also gave. Bill quite a good grounding. Yeah. So what I really liked, particularly <clears throat> in the early half of this season, is this idea I thought that there was an arc storyline going on about the Doctor educating or bringing Bill out because she's, she's at this university as a cook but is really smart enough to be a student there. I don't and, think we had enough of educating Bill. Well, this, is, this is what I thought. Mm. It sort of petered out. And so actually by the end of it, I was still... Petered re- out. Petered out. By was the, that deliberate? No. <laughs> by, the, by the end of... By the end of where the doctor falls, one of the things I was a bit sad about was Bill wasn't going to get her degree. Mm. Because I thought, 
well, as a university administrator, that's quite a big thing, a big thing for me. I wanted <laughs> yeah, to yeah. see her complete her degree. So, well, potentially. So the university gets, can get the uh, accolades of completion rates and then well, go up in the ratings in she the gets, entire higher education. <laughs> potentially, she gets dropped off by the pilot at the end and completes it. Yeah, yeah, that's what I like to think. And then, obviously, and then Bristol University gets the, gets the bump in the ratings. But, Stu- student experience, for instance. On the subject of the bugs... Because so again, you, you know, we recorded straight afterwards, and then when you go on social media after that, mm. you see what some of the debates were about. And one of the debates was how exactly do they function? And one of the complaints, I guess, was if David Suchet's character is controlling them with his tuning fork, how come the Doctor can't control them with his sonic screwdriver, for mm. example? Mm. But he wasn't David Suchet wasn't controlling them. He was just using the tuning fork to bring them out of hiding. What mm. they did after that was under the programming that they got from his his mother, mm. his daughter. Hang on, now I can't get it straight in my head. His it was his mother. Yes, of course it was. It stayed but that stage. locked in time. Yeah. Mm. So so I'm not sure whether I talked about this. I might have talked about this in response to an email. But the way I saw it was that when those bugs had arrived or been born or whatever on Earth, they'd gone to, in the same way as had happened in The Empty Child, in other words, another example of a writer writing for Stephen Moffat who knows his work and doesn't copy it, but uses the themes of Stephen Moffat's work. Mm. In the same way as that, the bugs has imprinted on David Suchet's mother and had understood that she needed something and had decided that that's what they were going to do and programmed that into themselves. So when David Suchet uses the tuning fork, all the bugs know is it's time to feed mother. So they come out and find, you know, the first item of food on the menu to feed mother with. So, and I, and I think that whole thing is, it's not just why doesn't he use the sonic screwdriver if Suchet can use the tuning fork, but there was a whole question of where did the bugs come from, mm. how do they do what they do, mm. and I and I think you only really need to have seen the Empty Child and to remember it to say, well, you know, it's not necessarily obviously, but it's more than likely the same thing is going on here, right? Yeah. I, I thought that was not necessarily obvious, but it was fairly obvious leap of. The imagination but it does rely out to an extent on formal knowledge of that episode. Well, it doesn't, because I still think you can put two and two together. Be interesting. Well, but if but knowing know that episode child, makes would... it more easy. I mean, for, to for me, if you follow. watch the episode and you worry about where the bugs come from, you probably miss the point. Watching of the, episode. the episode in the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. I think there's lots of well things in Doctor Who, but certainly in this series, that you watch and just think, okay. That has to happen. I think the issue with Knock Knock is that it makes the leap from teens in peril mm. to fairy tale for the last ten minutes, yeah. and yeah. that turn is too sharp a turn the, for people to follow. The perhaps. lovely moment of the guy who's been half processed in the wall was great, and yeah. that's the making of classic Doctor Who. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> it's just the bugs didn't kind of. It felt like the Mummy. Actually, you ever seen the Mummy? The old, yeah. Sorry, yeah, not yeah, the yeah. new one. Yeah, not the. Well, when you say the old one, you mean the recently <coughs> old one. The recently old one, yeah. The, um, the yes, rock, yeah, is yeah, it? Yeah, 
Isn't The Rock in it? He's in The Scorpion like King. No, oh, the wait, one, the first one. Oh, so are you talking about the 1930s one? Which no, no, no. one's talking about so the 1990s one. When you talk one. about the first Mummy film, the one where is it? What, what, is it what, Ahmed Jal- Jalili gets um, yeah, eaten okay, by the scarab okay. beetles? He's talking about the 90s and it's that one. Effect. Oh, for goodness sakes! When he says the first one, and he means the relatively <laughs> recent one. Relatively. Phyllis, have you seen the first one? The actual first one, probably. It's really sometime. good. Yeah, yeah. It's really good. I'm not saying it was the first one. I'm just saying. Sorry, I'm. Yeah, yes, not yes. the current <clears throat> one. Yeah, the yeah. Brendan Fraser ones. The actual Vice. Oh, yeah, yes, God. yes. Okay, they're dreadful. I think they're okay. Actually, I think the first ones. Yeah, the first ones are liking right. it quite. Second one, a bit. Bring a kid in. I can't remember seeing the second one. But... Oh, I couldn't stand it. But I just didn't like the Did... uh, tone of them. So this one, so Knock Knock also had this sort of sound effect thing going on, a bit like um, uh, Mark Gatiss from last year. Mm. It had a kind of a gimmick attached to it. Yeah. Did anybody experience the gimmick? No. Oh, okay. I wonder what it would be like with that, whether that was worth doing, this sort of bioral. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's binaural. Binaural. Oh, that's safer than <laughs> yeah. binaural. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that's gone off into fantasy land yeah. I can imagine it probably worked pretty well because yeah. uh, it would be like having 5.1 but in your headphones right so that might improve I mean so what they were going for with this was atmosphere but also sort of sound effect atmosphere it was kind of I about the always... soundtrack the creaking the noise the knocking yeah I thought all those things worked fine yeah. enough as it was yeah. when we watched it yeah yeah I, I I liked Knock Knock. I thought it was good. I didn't, didn't dislike it. I just and didn't. I couldn't find it tricky to get passionate apart from anything apart from David Suchet's performance. Yeah, maybe. But the twist into Fairy Tale at the end, you mm. see, suited me down to the ground. Oh, and the, effa- the effects on the mother, the the costume was amazing. Mm. Yeah, just really a good. shame again that turned up in the trailer because mm. mm. it's like you know when she's creaking from behind that screen and you. Yeah. Nobody watching that was wondering what was behind the screen because we'd all seen it. Yeah. Mm. Should we go on to the next one then? Okay. All right, Matt, it's your favourite. It, as Steve Hur says about this one that got 7.84, mm, nice. so we're actually a bit of a leap now up mm. from the bottom four to this next one up. He says it's hard to criticise any story this season. This was well written and acted with beautiful direction, but again, I was left underwhelmed, he says. Okay. And I have to say that was slightly my reaction to this, is The Eaters of Light. Oh, okay. I loved some of the poetry in it, Mm. but I thought thought it was a story. And as I said at the time, maybe it's the lyricism on the one hand and the sci-fi on the other hand not quite gelling together. But the final result did leave me a bit less than whelmed. Simon, you were here with me for that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's down to personal reaction. But yeah, I think Mm. I was probably won over by the lyricism. Of it and the mysticism and the and okay. all that stuff. Again, I probably wouldn't go back to it, but my impression was that it was a really good script, but maybe the necessities of modern Doctor Who got in the way. Yeah, yeah. And I think the monster they they had in it. The mo- once again, third time, the monster. Yeah, wasn't quite there. The tendrils were lovely, the little glow in the dark tendrils. Yes, but yeah. It was kind of attached onto this. Bog standard, like relic type. Yeah, they showed yeah. too much. They showed too much. Well, mm-hmm. as we said at the time, the monster needed to be something a bit more. It was walking around on four legs, and yet in its dimension, it was there floating around. So why would yeah. it? It would be something more. Yeah, why would it need legs? Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a really good story in there. That kind of 
combination of ancient history and landscape mm. and you know uh, Henger's being a portal to another I mean it's it's not original but Doctor Who doesn't often do that no so, I really right. liked all that stuff yeah, mm. yeah. I just mm. thought it didn't quite sit together as a story yeah. it was a little bit clumsy as well when you had that point where the, I think we said this at the time that where the Doctor suddenly gets knocked out or something like that doesn't he at one point well it's one of those ones that. that you kind of also had again in The Doctor Falls where all of a sudden the Doctor's doing something that ain't necessarily in his character mm. nor does it necessarily quite make sense in the narrative in order to get a moment where he has a big speech and a big dramatic moment mm. and then something comes along to change the way the narrative's going. So as the Doctor says in The Doctor Falls, right, he has this big speech where he says, you know, I don't do this because it's easy and I don't do this because I necessarily win. I do this because it's the right thing to do. But if you've got, and, and I mean, we've seen The Doctor on screen for 55 years, right? 54 mm. years. We, we've we seen The Doctor as a character who is led by his emotions to a degree and is usually a make-do-and-mend character, mm. but he also has an inherent understanding of what the rational thing to do is. Mm. So he's not... So if he understands that he is going to all these places and doing all these good things that are the right thing to do, you don't then sacrifice yourself for a small thing and stop yourself from being able to carry on doing all the other good things. And also there's this element of the Doctor's character that seems to have been lost. There's this one where he makes people become a mate. I'm trying to remember which Doctor was started. It was one of the modern ones. Ninth. Yeah, Ninth Doctor. Where he focuses on the people and sees the potential and says, "This is their this is their time to shine." Well, virtually every episode in mm. um, series one ends so, with one of the background characters stepping up so and it's saving a the day. Opportunity for him to say, "Oh, right, there's the, you're a Celt, you're a Roman, work together. This is your destiny." It's almost a bit Colin Bakerish. So there are some moments in Colin Baker where Colin Baker's Doctor offers himself as a sacrifice for a noble purpose, and it's supposed to be a big moment. Yeah. But actually, you're thinking, well. This isn't really as big a sacrifice mm. as, as you you're would, making it as out. You, as you <laughs> would normally, it's not like Tom times when Tom Baker like offers to blow up the ark or something like that. So it's it's sort of yeah. I mm. think I think what it's it's oh, sorry. It's just it's storytelling for the purpose of the narrative of that specific episode. Yeah, what this possibly was was a really really good story about the Romans and the Celts and their relationship. And a good piece of tension, but with Doctor Who getting in the way yeah. of that story. So mm, I think mm. possibly, yeah, maybe yeah, maybe in the older series it would have had maybe space to. And I'm not no, sure it would have been like... better if it hadn't been Doctor Who episode yeah. at all. If it had just okay. been something else entirely. Yeah, and I think maybe that's pure not historical. not necessarily Randy Munro. No, not a pure historical, but if it it's had not been a, a Doctor Who story, but if it had been a <laughs> just play a, in, yeah. Um, yeah. in uh, Out of the Unknown or something, yeah. mm. where it could have just stood in its own right. Mm. Mm. And I don't think this is a Ronan Monroe thing. I think possibly this, some of these stories are dented maybe by Stephen Moffat's show running and by his editing. I well, think part of his show running is to have every now and again a story, and In the Forest of the Night was another one like mm. that. 
that comes along where it stands apart from the rest of Doctor Who. And you, I don't mind that because you get yes. stories yeah, like yeah, that yeah. throughout the history of Doctor yeah. Who. Yeah. But you kind of have to suspend your understanding of the series and then you either go with the episode, yeah, like yeah. the Mind Robber or yeah. the Celestial Toy Maker, or you don't. But this is, but this isn't an isolated incident. So a lot of these stories we've been talking about that are in the bottom half, the flaws that they have are structural and content. And Stephen Moffat would have been, would have been on top of that sort of getting rewrites and fixing these. Things. I think this is the only one that suffers that particular problem though. Pyramid or the pyramid? Story. No, this is the only one where actually the intrusion of Doctor Who spoils yeah, the yeah, episode. Yeah, that, that specifically, yeah. yes. But there are other problems that possibly would have been would have been under the the showrunners sort of. Yeah, I think they all suffer variations on it. Yeah, I think because I think the issue is, and this is probably a conclusion that we would have been getting towards, is that the issue with this series is that it it tries to simplify things. Yeah. So some of the so you get an episode like the Eaters of Light, where actually it's quite a dense story, and actually Eaters of Light is one of the few examples where it gets away with being left to be that. Mm-hmm. But something like Knock Knock, it does a very simple thing, and then it does another very simple thing, and it's like a complete left turn at the end of the episode. Yeah. So that rather than allowing that left turn to come naturally, mm. it's signposted. And then taken at speed. And throughout, and Pyramid at the End of the World, lots of ideas. But none of the ideas are really developed. Because in simplifying it, it's almost as if they're saying, Hey audience, here's the idea. Did you enjoy that idea? Hey audience, here's another idea. And it's almost like they're walking you through Mm. some of the stories. And I think... This is distinguished from Series 8 and Series 9 in that the stories are very similar. But in Series 8 and 9, the density came from the texture they put on the ideas rather than the amount of ideas that Mm. they put in. Mm. Yeah. So those felt to me more cohesive and more rewarding. Yeah. Whereas this has been enjoyable and there's been some brilliant moments. But not many of the episodes this year have been so coherent that they felt like a great story. Mm. They've just been vessels to have great moments and great So then there are structural issues rather than tonal issues Yeah, with these stories. Yeah, I think the tone's been fine. Yeah. Mm. And if you add on Pearl Mackey and Peter Capaldi and Matt Lucas on top of that, Mm. you get this superficial sheen that you're watching brilliant Doctor Who. But actually, it's all a bit hard. There's a sheen of maturity to it. Because I thought that when, when as the series started and carried on, it just felt like, oh, we found the right kind of gear for it. Yeah. Where it's behaving like any other mature TV program, mm. as opposed to this thing that. But as it went on, you just kind of realised it wasn't doing very much with mm. that. Mm. It kind of set up. It had kind of set up a template for a brilliant Doctor Who, mm. and then not realised it could do anything with it. So it just kind of. It kind of got into a gear, but instead of going up through the gears, it just started got into that gear and mm. then just kind of, mm. you know, moseyed along in that gear. Just just going back to that point you're saying about you know where you you, you kind of make allowances for it though is I get this sentence in my head is I'm glad it exists. Mm. Yeah, I, I feel very much about that <clears throat> way about the light eaters. I don't think any story, light, sorry. any episode in this series is like a bad episode. No, it's really strange. I think I think it's a 
I don't think it's the best season of Doctor Who ever made, but I think it's pretty a consistent. One, it's yeah. a solid. Well, it's definitely been entertaining, and I think yeah. that's the general yeah. reaction, isn't it? Mm. And even if, like me with Smile, I had an issue with the story, I could still, mm. you know, really enjoy Pearl Maggie and Peter Capaldi's yeah. part in it. I think this is my least favourite of the three Peter Capaldi series, but only in the same way as, say, Series 5 is my least favourite of the three Matt Smith ones, mm. in that I still like it. Mm. I just don't like it as much as the other two. Mm. Should we go to the one that came exactly at the halfway point then? Yes. Which got 8.24%. And Steve Hur said, I could feel the love and joy Mark Gatiss injected into this simple but enjoyable tale, and Alpha Centauri as well. What a treat for us yawny oldsters. Hmm. This would have been right down at the bottom of my pile, along with Smile. No, it would have been high up. Well, I didn't want it to be. I didn't want it to be. It's always the same with Mark Gatiss' episode. I don't want to not like them. I think it. I kind of like elements of them, but I don't. It's just never fulfilling. This didn't have the archness of tone that the Crimson Horror had, and I think it could have done with that. I preferred it to Crimson Horror, but I'm not. (gasps) I'm not a fan of Crimson Horror. I didn't like the tone. I thought because it was so. Let's talk about the Crimson Horror. It was sort of an earth, set on earth, but it didn't feel. It was this kind of abstract earth. It felt like a League of Gentlemen. Type Earth, but, and that kind of took me out well, of that's it. That's kind of what he does, isn't it? Not, not necessarily. I think it's what he's I mean, successful at. Yeah. I mean, uh, what's the one set in the 1950s? He did the Idiot's Lantern. Lantern. The Idiot's Lantern mm. didn't really do that. It felt like so. I think with the Idiot's Lantern is he created a version of the 1950s that felt like a version of the 1950s. Mm. So it wasn't an accurate recreation of the 1950s, but it was a sort of kind of an ironic mm. one. Crimson Horror didn't do that it was more sort of a a fantasy version of Yorkshire I don't know I don't know it just didn't work for me but uh, so yeah I think Crimson Horror is Mark Gatiss' best episode right. you know what well, we were saying just now about those episodes that sit outside the series and you yes, have to yeah. uh, you have to watch them on their own terms yeah. rather than yeah. on the series terms I think Crimson Horror is that well I think this is that I was is just going to say this is really simple colourful of nice, nice effects. The effects were great. Yeah. The 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 soldier crunching effect was particular. Yeah, particularly. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's so. Again, I'm judging a lot of these by what spring what springs to mind when I remember them. Because in the future, my affection for Doctor Who comes down to memorable moments and memorable scenes, and I think that that sort of that sort of crunching effect as an updating of the Ice Warriors weapons is a really sort of genius touch. I don't really get anything else out of that episode, though. I, I love the idea the moment they said, oh, there's Victorians on Mars. Yeah. I just thought, oh, that is effing brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. And you saw it. Opportunity for real Jules Verne stuff. Yeah. But then the explanation why they were there was kind of... I don't know. It, took it was the, all a bit it took, ho-hum. It took the magic out of it in some respects because, oh, oh yeah, the Ice Warriors created this environment for them and it's like... Yeah. Okay. But if you left a it... If you left it a little bit vague, then you'd have people saying, like Forest in the Forest of the Night. It's a if you go too vague, then you you cross over into the sort of the. But wouldn't it have been brilliant if the Ice Warrior had taught them how to create these? 
brilliant, amazing kind of steam-driven machines that that create oxygen for them. It's so, all going in the corner and stuff like that. Spoken like a comics fan. <laughs> well, I mean, it's true. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. That, that was the thing that was conjured up, and that was what was lovely. Yeah, I mean, well, it, it was supposed to be a bit like a comic strip. This wasn't. Yeah. It? I think so. Except yeah. it didn't yeah. really. I don't think it's. If you showed me stills of it, I think, oh yeah, that was really great. It needed more money and more space to develop these things. Mm. Maybe so. I I think they would possibly, they possibly try to do it a bit cheaply, and you're you're watching it thinking, okay, you very cleverly because I remember an interview with Mark Gatiss where he talks about suddenly they discover that they have enough, enough technical ability to go to Mars. Well, they do that by just filming in some caves. Yeah. With one shot of Mars occasionally above and that's that's their kind of see I don't have an issue with that I think it was just that it kind of oh I don't know Uh, maybe it's down to the characters again some people absolutely adored it though this I think there were a couple of people who had this top there were certainly several who had it second Mm. I mean it did it was quite pleasurable the way it tried to tie in to to Doctor Who history Law, yeah. so it's creating a kind of a an ice warrior continuity which you it doesn't you couldn't actually really, make any sense if you think about it but not really but you couldn't do it before because there weren't enough stories before and there were clearly two there were clearly trout and ice warriors and purple ice warriors yeah, yeah. and they were completely separate but now i mean i think it's unnecessary but it's bound to appeal to some people to have this story as a kind of a bridging story between the two different <clears throat> depictions of ice world are you saying that empresses of mars is the modern series attack of the cybermen yeah potentially and there's a certain pleasure to be had about attack of the cybermen the, di- <laughs> the difference is attack of the cybermen went on for what three weeks was it a three no, two two part i think it was a three parter no two parts okay so it went on for two 45 minute episodes this went on for one 45 minute episode yeah and so i'm quite happy to but i tell you what this episode sums up for me possibly the biggest issue with this series in that you introduce bill at the start and she is instantly incredibly likable mm. and you think and we were all saying at the start, weren't we? She's got the potential to go on and be the best companion of the new series. Mm-hmm. And possibly I think she's given the best performance of a companion of the new series. Mm-hmm. But her character hasn't really developed across the 12 episodes. She's a victim in Oxygen. Mm. She's behaving a little bit like a victim. As soon as you say that, I think about Donna being, yeah, obviously being my favourite. You think about Donna can progress. There was a progression. Yeah, but then Ross T. Davis did something really horrible to her at the end. But what I'm saying with Bill is she, she, she keeps having these moments where she discovers what the Doctor's world is about Mm. and can join in with being a part of the Doctor's world. And then the very next episode, she's, just a woman in peril. I think maybe maybe dividing it up between Nardole and Bill is a mistake in that sense. Because however much I like Nardole, and I do like Nardole, they seem to sort of swap proactive roles between them. So Nardole came across as sort of tough and in command when Bill didn't, and vice versa. So if you gave, if you combine the two roles together and just had Bill, you might get a bit more well, of, maybe, sort of a but proactive companion. There's also some inconsistency to the Doctor in this episode, if I remember rightly. Just things like when Bill disappears down through the hole in the floor, 
And he's there going, Bill, 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 Bill. I thought it was totally out of character for but, but, Doctor. Yeah, but coming back to this, then Bill's part in this, and Nardole's not even in this. No, yeah. And Bill's but part in this is, the, the, the Ice Warriors have got this single female Ice Warrior who's actually in charge. Mm. And Bill doesn't even get what um, Liz Sladen had in Monster of Peladon, or even what it Joe Grant even, had in Curse yeah. of Peladon. The, the, the Empress of Mars says to Bill... You're a woman. You're bound to be the most sensible one here. Yeah. What do you think about it? And Bill says, oh, it's what the blokes say. Twice that happened in the yeah, episode. Yeah, needed a Joe Grant or a that was Sarah Jane moment. Unforgivable. Mm. And she's easily as potent a companion yeah. as I Yeah, I mean, was. she'd had throughout the other episodes, not in all of them, but in most, or in certainly about half of them, she'd been given moments where her character had been given over to understanding something that the other characters couldn't. Mm. She, So she was being developed as a, a character of insight. So when you get to Empress of Mars and she's asked for insight, the very last thing she should say is, what the blokes say. It just... I, I just thought that was you know, quite shocking, really. But Anything else on Empress of Mars? No, I liked it. I like the ice warriors. I like mm, the uh, I like the, sort of the, the new. But I like <laughs> I like what they've done with the ice warriors. I've never the, been they're a more big sort of run the ice warriors. They can mm. run. I know. Mean, I'm never. Well, they're not the greatest monster. But I think if you had the ice warriors mythology and the draconians as the ones who had that mythology. Because the Draconian's mythology is not that far away from the Ice Warriors mm. mythology anyway. Mm. Mm. But I don't know, it just... Sometimes you look at the Ice Warriors and you think, well, this mythology just doesn't go with those creatures. Mm. I don't know. Simon, did you have a film you wanted to talk about? Oh, yes. I just wanted to mention Okja. Okja, which has just come out on... Um, it's only on Netflix because it's actually a Netflix-financed movie. Is it not at the pictures? No. It caused, I think it caused controversy at Cannes, didn't it? Mm, because it, it was sort of shown at Cannes, but then it's not going to be shown as a shown on the big screen. Okay. So they're banning Netflix from so Cannes. So, to all intents and purposes, it's a, it's a family film for adults. Mm. Yeah, yeah, this was my it. issue with the trailer. Mm. It looks like the trailer. It looks like my friend Totoro. Well, the and trailer. You must be a huge influence on it. The trailer mm. is E.T. meets Kickass. Yeah. It's a friendly alien creature, for mm. want of a better description. Befriends a kid, but then lots of shooting and swearing. Yeah, the, the violence is not in any way, uh, you know... Um... Is it cartoony? No, no, not at all. Because the trailer gives the impression it might be sort of slightly cartoony violence in that sort is of... It the sort of, of no, no, no. Is it the sort of no, film where maybe the, real the trailer would never do justice to the movie itself? Absolutely not, no. Right. I just think it's worth watching. It's not the greatest film I've ever seen, but it's definitely worth watching. I've heard people have turned vegan after watching it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that would be a natural movie. reaction to okay. it. But I just think, why with the swearing and why that level of violence? The, surely the film would shame. Because the yeah, film wouldn't have worked better if it had been more universal. If they put that in the trailer, maybe that's acting as a kind of a warning. Yeah, I think you're probably right. This isn't going to be for suitable kids. for kids. But maybe in the film itself, maybe it's blended in a bit 
better than the trailer. No, but what I'm saying is, why have that in the film at all? Because what the film's message is would surely have gone because over better if it had been a family movie. Because it's it's it is a satire. It is quite satirical. But, but you like can you say it's got the so, so you can satirize things without having to do that. So no, but I wouldn't say there's any more swearing than needs to be in there. So I do, really don't. I don't think do it's I get, over the top. It's certainly not kick-ass level. Do no, I get, but my issue isn't. <laughs> yeah, this is we're talking about film. But so the, because we're having a conversation it, about because this, the people yeah. in it behave. Although there are some real caricatures characters, mm. um, Tilda Swinton and um, Jake Gyllenhaal are two very big, odd, twisted characters, but extremely entertaining. So the impression, nasty. The impression, sorry, but people are reacting like normal people. So there's the swearing in there is no more than you would hear mm. in real life. The so. impression I've got from reviews is there are elements of the film which is possibly spoilerific that aren't suitable for children yeah. but aren't gratuitous swearing or violence they're mm. they're kind of conceptual conceptually horrific mm. moments mm. which is the point of the film mm. because it jars with the childish elements of it and possibly they couldn't put that in the trailer because that would ruin that particular twist yeah. so to make it clear it's not for children they put swearing and violence into the trailer to kind of just try and issue a warning because it's on Netflix. I didn't watch a trailer beforehand, so I had no. And, and because it's prior. on Netflix, there's less there's less control over who the audience of the film. So you can have children just calling up their parents. I mean, there is a child at centre of this who is an innocent, yeah, um, and also doesn't speak any English at all. Mm. So you're kind of aware that she's not picking up on any of the swearing. So it's not like somebody's swearing in front of a child, in as much as the child will hear it and. Would the film not have worked better if it had the same sort of sensibilities as something like Where the Wild Things Are? Because, I mean, it from, from what I know of it, it looks like it starts off as a sort of E.T. thing, mm. where you've got this... It's not an alien creature, but essentially it's an alien creature, mm. right? Mm. And the authorities want the alien creature, just like mm. they do in E.T. Mm. And it befriends a child, mm. and the child has no means of communication with the authorities because yeah. it's working on different levels, just mm. like in E.T. Mm. And then it looks like it goes all kick-ass at the end. Well, it's... What can I say without giving too much away? It's not an alien. It is a... It's a giant pig. It's a giant. It's, it's They call it, call it a super pig. And the idea being that this is a life form that they've bred in order to feed the starving mm. people. So actually, the the interesting thing is the baddie Tilda Swinton. The idea behind it is that she wants to feed the millions. She 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 sees it as a big, massive um, thing that she's doing for the world. But um, but completely but skewed. But yes, that's all fine. Mm. But you could tell that story without going down the kick-ass route if you weren't going to be realistic. Yeah, but it's already not realistic. So there are different ways of not being realistic. Mm. Well, I mean, you don't have these giant super pigs, right? No. That's fantasy, right? No. So you can do the thing without doing the kick-ass thing. Are you saying that... Uh, no, because the, there are some uh, animal freedom fighters get involved. Yes, but... Uh, when, that... when you Now, when you get the whole story, you understand what's going on yeah. and the fact that there is a big... There's obviously, there's a conspiracy going on and the only way to get through that is for people to start getting involved... So it's the point. It's the, so point it's the levels a, they go to to protect what's going on. There's a fantastical element, and then there's the real world element, yes. and it's the collision between the two, exactly. and the jarring between the two. That's the whole point of the film, exactly. 
and that realistic position of the instinct of the girl yeah. and then the yeah. nastiness yeah. of yeah. big business like Pan's Labyrinth yeah. so Pan's Labyrinth has that kind of Pan's Labyrinth wouldn't work if it was just the fantasy side it wouldn't work if it was just the Nazi stomping head mm. side it's the two together it's the girl's life outside the fantasy world and within the fantasy world that, that well, all I would say is the violence I don't think is glorified anyway there, there, there I'm not complaining about sickness. it yeah. but I'm not complaining that it's glorified mm. I've not seen it mm. I'm just I just you're inquisitive yeah, and I just, I look at the trailer and I think this could have worked as a great family film and got this message out to everybody. But as it is, they've deliberately narrowed their parameters in such a way that they're narrowing their field of influence. I think if you put this out as a family film with the message it's got, I think you get a whole lot of trouble. I really do, because so people would watch it and then think, you've just sneaked that under the radar for my children to watch. So like Pan's Labyrinth. Honestly, but honestly, then, like, there are you, lots you, of films to... like that. Sorry? There are lots of films like that. Lots of TV programmes like that. That are sort of educational, yeah? But this yeah, isn't... but you could equally say that this is a viewpoint. I mean, there's a, there, there is a, the message is uh, one of real, absolute reality. It's very hard to, without so spoiling a, things. Uh, it's an adult film that uses children, the look of a children's film as a way to make an adult point. Like Pan's Labyrinth. Maybe so, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I it's mean, not, if you watch some like friend, uh, My Friend Totoro, yeah. it's, well, it, obviously it's like a bit like the Pixar movies where it works at two levels. It works yeah, at a yeah. child level and an adult, yeah. adult level. But yeah. this is, they've taken away the child level mm. on the perception front, but it's still there cosmetically. Mm. So... Mm. And equally, it makes you as an adult view it and, and realise, you know, that's some of the stuff that's going on. So to make it suitable for children, it's kind it's of pointless. Is besides the point. Yeah. Mm. I don't know, it just seems like, from what I could see... Yeah, but you're saying all that without watching it. Yeah, <laughs> no, but I just... And equally, trailers. I mean... Hmm. Well, particularly for a film like this, the trailers must be really difficult to make. Yeah, because you've got the look of the film, which is saying one thing, mm. but the overall film, which you have to watch, mm. is saying another thing. And I haven't seen it either, but I'm just going by you know other people's reviews of this. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame in some respects because it's a bit like from doing a trailer from Dust Till Dawn and then showing mm. yeah. yeah how yeah. that flips halfway through in the trailer. Yeah. Oh yeah. <clears throat> All right, fair enough. Give it a score out of ten. I'd give it an eight. Okay. Right, next week, unless something else happens in the meantime, we'll be back to talk about the other five episodes of Series 10 mm-hmm. and get the people's emails and stuff. So until then, I was JR. I was Matt. I was Simon. And we'll speak again then.
and if you've got a three-year-old, don't stay in bed and leave him in the front room unattended with the window wide open. With Ocha on the telly. <laughs> well, certainly not with that. Show them Pan's Labyrinth instead. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, the effects in Ocha are amazing as well. Is there a dubbed version of Pan's Labyrinth? A what, sorry? A dubbed version. There probably, probably I don't is, know. isn't there? I think Possibly. there is. don't think yeah. so. Why? I just wondered whether... Because this is one of those weird things, isn't it? You can get away with showing foreign language films to children if they've got swearing in, because the children can't keep up with the subtitles enough mm. yeah. to yeah. understand that that's what's yeah. going on, and they'll just absorb the story through the pictures. But with Pan's Labyrinth, it's more the brutal stop oh, yeah, the yeah, head yeah. of the Spanish Nazi, mm. which is <laughs> the real, that's the real sort of thing that tips it into don't show this to children, I think. Yeah, but kids watch, or, you know, a, a generation of kids watched Tom and Jerry. Yes. And a generation of kids watched yeah. The Brain of Morbius. Yeah. And a generation of kids have watched yeah. various other things. And I, I agree that they have, but Pan's Labyrinth, particularly well, I, this particular scene, is done with such sort of reality and such... Well, st- like the um, head sure. scene in um, American History X. Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's lots of sort of head-smashing scenes. Which are which are done kind of it's a bit like showing your child The Walking Dead. But... No, well, yeah, I was just curious. Hmm. <laughs> <clears throat> I I tell you what, I looked at the Blu-ray of um, City of Lost Children the other day, and the dubbed version's not on there because there is a dubbed version that exists, and I know purists will be tearing their hair out because you should watch it with subtitles. Yeah. But you know, I would watch it with subtitles. But I'd like to show it to other people who wouldn't watch it with subtitles and therefore they won't watch it. And, you know, a purist can say you should watch it with subtitles. But to be fair, if you're watching the film, whether it's subtitles or dubbed, it's more important to be watching the film than which version of it you're watching, surely. I watched um, Pasolini's Canterbury Tale, which is a a Doctor Who link, because that's the one where uh, Tom Tom Baker Baker gets his willy out. Of course, and yeah. obviously that's so Canterbury Tales the Pasolini film it's filmed with British actors speaking with British dialogue English dialogue dubbed into Italian and then subtitled back into English so you could watch it conceivably with the original English language if they saved it <laughs> but I purposefully and I'm not sure if I, I don't think well it may have had that option I don't know oh. but I purposefully went for the in Italian with subtitles just because it would have felt weird to watch a dubbed... Actually, well, most Italian films are dubbed anyway. What's Tom Baker's voice like in it, then? Um, sort Did of... Did they remember like it? Vague, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, well, yeah, I vaguely remember it was slightly effeminate because that was his character. Yeah. It's probably not dubbed by him anyway. No, it wasn't dubbed by him. Dubbed by somebody else. That's what, no, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. What sort of voice Italian. did they give him? The and then you look at the... Um, but actually, they wouldn't have kept... So, no, there wouldn't be in the original dialogue because they, they purposefully... All Italian movies dubbed onto their film. That's why it looks slightly odd sometimes. Because well, they just bring up the normal dialogue. The Man with No Name trilogy. Yeah, yeah. Where a lot of the actors like don't speak any English and they're just forming the words phonetically mm-hmm. for somebody else to dub them on afterwards. Yeah. And it works fine. Mm. And actually, those films wouldn't be the same in Italian, would they? Yeah. No. No. Shall I press stop? Yes. (laughs) Otherwise I'm going to talk about more Italian films. Yeah, let's not have that.